a fan podcast devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the pages of Trekker Comics by creator, writer, and artist Ron Randall. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth, and we're recording from the Baltimore Convention Center near the beautiful Inner Harbor area of Baltimore, Maryland, and we have a very special guest joining us today. We're at Baltimore Comic Con, and Ron Randall himself has honored us with some of his valuable time for an interview. Thank you, Mr. Randall, and welcome to Trekker Talk. Thanks to both of you. It's it's a great pleasure to be here. And as I was saying to Darren before we started, I really appreciate all the work that you guys are doing, the heart and the thought that you're putting into helping uh, get the word out about Trekker and sort of celebrating the return. Well, thank you very much. We've got a few questions to go through, and you're very busy today. You've been very busy all weekend, so we'll get started. What made you want to get into comics, and how did you make that happen? So when I was a little kid, I, I read comic books, and most little kids seem to read comics more commonly, but I sort of thought of them almost like the way you think of a candy bar. You're like you'd go to the store, and you get a candy bar, and you buy a comic book. You, just, you sort of took it for granted that they were around, and they just sort of came from someplace. But when I was in second grade, I met a guy who, um, who became friends, and it turns out he had a lot of comic books too, but more, he had his comic books sorted into stacks based on who wrote and drew certain comic books. Like he had all the, the Uncle Scrooges, and he knew that those were drawn by a guy named Carl Barks. And he had these Fantastic Four comics, and they were written by a guy named Stan Lee and drawn by a guy named Jack Kirby. And it may sound really simplistic, but that was the first time it dawned on me that people actually did this for a living. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. So pretty quickly, my friend and I started, you know, drawing our own characters and making up our own superheroes and and the bug just really hit me and i just i just basically never stopped <laughs> That's great. and uh, i mean i had a lot of other friends or at least some who sometimes like after school on a weekend we get together and we spend some of our time drawing together but and gradually over time most of them found other things to do with their time that were more compelling to them than sitting there drawing but i just got lost in that process so that's what planted the bug in me. And then when it came to making, turning into a, like a professional career, the, the real decisive step was when I, because I was from Portland, Oregon. And back then, you know, Marvel and DC were pretty much, if you wanted to do comic books, you were working for Marvel or DC. And they're both based in the middle of Midtown Manhattan, which are 3,000 miles away from me. And this is before there was a, an internet, before there was, I mean, there weren't even fax machines or Federal Express. So it was like, to me, it felt like the other side of the moon. So I thought it was, I, I would never really be a professional comic book artist, but I kept drawing them anyway, you know. And then I, when I was in college, I heard about the Joe Kubert School, which had just started in, in, in Dover, New Jersey. And Joe Kubert was one of my heroes as a kid because of his amazing, energetic, brilliant storytelling on books like Tarzan, Sergeant Rock, Enemy Ace. So... I thought, ah, this is a thing to look into. So I sent in a portfolio through the mail, and I actually had a phone interview with Joe Kubert himself, which is pretty intimidating. But I got into the school. So moving to New Jersey to go to his school, that was the crucial step because that got me in touch not only with Joe but other professionals who were working at his school as educators and also a bunch of peers. I was surrounded by a bunch of other, mostly guys, who wanted to do the same thing with their life that I wanted to do and they had the same passions and it, I, I, I describe it to people as it was sort of because back then the school was like this old three-storied mansion it was kind of like being at an animal house full of cartoonists is the way I described <laughs> it 
uh, it was a lot of characters there, but several of us benefited from you know the instruction we got there to the point that we have been able to turn it into successful careers for ourselves. So, and Joe was not only a wonderful instructor and a brilliant cartoonist, but he was just an amazingly wonderful man, <clears throat> very generous uh, with his time and very passionate about comic books as an art form, as a way to tell stories. He, he never emphasized drawing really well. He emphasized telling the story effectively, and that's what really sunk in with me. Brian Mulvey, who is a diehard fan of yours and a loyal listener to the podcast, guessed that we might try to interview this weekend, so he sent in his own question for you. He asks, when you first started in the business, who were the writers and artists who influenced and or assisted you in breaking into the industry? Well, of course, I already talked about Joe, who was a massive influence, and it was a real honor to get to work right with Joe. So after I graduated from the school, it was a two-year program when I went, but I basically had a third year, and so did some of the others that graduated with me, where Joe would, who was editing the Sergeant Rock comic book at DC at the time, and there were these little backup stories. That sometimes there's two or three pages long about one of the members of the Easy Company, the World War II soldier troop or other war stories. And he would give to us like these little two or three or four page stories to draw that were going to get published professionally. It was like our first professional work. And the way that it went was he would hand us a script. We would go to our apartment or our home and draw our little thumbnails, our little plans for each page and call up Joe on the phone and say, I'm ready to show you my thumbnails, Joe. And he'd, we'd go over to his, uh, to his home studio and sit down right with Joe at his drawing board. And he would go over the thumbnails and, and show us, just really quickly, about five better solutions for every panel that I had composed. Wow. And the, the amazing thing was, he never did it in a way that you were feeling like you were being beaten up you know, or, or scolded. He was, he was just all about, here's a great way to tell this story. And it was never personal. So it was very inspiring and, again, very generous of Joe. You know, I can't escape that as being a massive influence. But when I was a kid, and again, sort of casually reading comic books and discovering most of the comics out there, Superman and later the Marvel comics and stuff. But I was about 12 years old, I think, and I went into a random convenience store and there was a rack of comics and I pulled up one that looked like nothing else I'd ever seen in comics before. And it was a guy in a, in like a blue, a cool looking blue leather jacket and tight pants and a ray gun. And it was Flash Gordon. By, by a company I'd never heard of called Gold Key, and it was drawn by Al Williamson. And I bought that comic book, and it was so lush with foliage and swamp creatures and elegant spaceships and these gorgeously idealized men and women drawings. And uh, that's the point when I said, not I want to be a comic book artist, I said I want to be that comic book artist. That was exactly what I wanted to be. So Al Williamson was another huge influence on me and beyond that the list is is so varied i mean if you if you've seen one jack kirby artist you become influenced by jack kirby his work is just so dynamic and stuff there were there were so many others golly you know john buscema and his his marvel work was an influence and in the early 70s people like um barry smith barry windsor smith now and mike kaluta and of course bernie wrights and those guys who brought a more elevated level of illustration back into comics from the, the 1960s that I grew up on. And of course, Neil Adams um, exploded like a bomb on the industry when he hit because he, he just made everybody elevate their game. In fact, some of these guys, Adams was one guy in particular, who was such a powerful influence on me that there was a period of time where I said, I cannot look at any of Neil Adams' comics now because it will influence my own work too much. 
So that's a very short list of a very long list of, of people that have influenced me. I, I, I guess I should add one more. Because of Al Williamson, I then got into some of the other sort of the classic illustrators, science fiction greats like Wally Wood and Frank Frazetta. And of course, eventually that ultimately has to lead you back to Alex Raymond, who created Flash Gordon, and Hal Foster, who created Prince Valiant. And that school of drawing, that sort of classically illustration-grounded school of drawing, has always been a huge influence on me, even though most, especially superhero comics, benefit from that really, that much more cartoony, exaggerated proportion and perspective stuff, the energy that Jack Kirby brought into the work. And I've got some of Jack's, that sort of school of drawing in me, the cartoonist school in me, but my center of gravity always tends to pull me back to things that are sort of balanced and proportional and perspective. So my job is to invest as much energy and drive and drama into the into the work that I can without losing as much of the elegance and balance that, that I just am really that I just love. <laughs> I love to try to create. How did the idea and the opportunity to create Trekker come about? As I said, I'd moved out to New Jersey. I went to the school and after school I got my career started. And after a number of years there I felt that I had established myself enough with certain editors that I could sustain my career by moving back home to Portland because I love where I live. So I moved back to Portland and I thought I was moving 3,000 miles away from the, from the entire industry. But it was right around the time that a lot of little companies are starting and Dark Horse Comics was one of them. And at that time they were based right there in Portland. So the first time I was back I was at a local convention and Randy Stradley came up and introduced himself to me and said that he and a friend were starting a comics company and they wanted to get a few people who were established professionally to work for them. And I was, as I say, I was working full-time for DC at the time, but at the time, they made me an offer, and they said, if you come and work for us, we will pay you, and you can do whatever you want to for us. And I, I at least deserve the credit for realizing that I would never get an offer like that again. And it gave me the chance, the, this amazing chance, to answer the question for myself of, what comic strip in an ideal world, what comic series would I craft without having to worry about, oh, I need to try to sell this to a company or make it particularly commercial. I just said, what, do, what would I most want to do? And so I came up with, with the features of a series. that I, I knew I loved, I always loved science fiction and it was not easy to find science fiction comic books then. Um, I had recently done a series called The Barren Earth, which was written by a guy who became a tremendous friend of mine and a great writer named Gary Cohn. And he crafted that as a science fiction series, and it had a female lead character. And I think that really helped to make me want to do a series with a female lead character. And that was another thing that was not a particularly commercial choice at the time, especially when I, when I realized that I needed to keep the series believable and realistic to me, or else I wouldn't even have any respect for it myself. So she needed to be dressed appropriately for an action-adventure role as a bounty hunter. So anyway, so I crafted this idea for the series and presented it to Dark Horse, and I'm everlastingly grateful that Mike Richardson said, that sounds like a fun comic book, do that. So that's how I was able to start Trekker. And then after doing it as I could with Dark Horse, the problem was it was kind of a hard sell, especially at the time, because comic books were sort of geared to be sold to a certain audience then. So the only concession that I made to um, the commercial considerations was if I thought it was a cool idea, certainly there would be other readers out there who would think so. And I, I think I was absolutely right about that. The challenge was to get the book in front of those people, make them aware of it, and I don't know that, that we succeeded as well at, at that as we could have. So I was only able to work on Trekker after she had her own series for a while, sort of off and on for a number of years. And so then eventually I had to set it 
down for a long time until I was at the point where I could get back to telling the stories without having to interrupt it again. And when I finally realized years later that I could build a website and bring it back that way and eventually get the books back into print, that's, that's how the return finally happened. Just speaking again of Trekker, because I really want to talk more about what you just mentioned, but I also want to talk about that wonderful opportunity. And prior to Trekker, you were primarily an artist, but with Trekker, you were suddenly also a writer. And what always amazed me, especially as I learned more about you later on, is that the very first Trekker story is a fantastically gripping story. So it's not only well drawn, but it's so well written. So what had prepared you to be ready to write such a gripping story in the very first issue? I guess there's a few ways I could answer that one. One is, as I say, when I was at the Cubit School, what we were trained, I mean, we got a lot of training in how to draw and figure drawing and that stuff, but the main thrust of it was telling stories. So even when I'm working on somebody else's script, the whole idea is what's, the, what's going on here? You know, what are the details that make this moment an important one? And Because storytelling largely is about selection, of what are the details and how to present them. So a lot of that feel for where the story is and you know how long this scene should be pacing things out came from working on on scripts and and working that intimately because when you're reading a script from a writer you're sort of you know getting a chance to crawl inside their brain and see that so there was some of that going on and just having a read a lot of comic books as a kid and also when i was and a lot of novels and stuff and when i was in school i did i double majored in art and literature so i did some creative writing classes so i I was exposed to at least some of the rudimentaries of the craft of using language and trying to come up with dialogue and finding a voice for characters and that stuff. So it was a pretty broad-based background. But a lot of times, like when I'm talking to kids about where do ideas come from and how you do these skills, I say it's that, it's that very simple formula of garbage in, garbage out. And if you're listening to somebody tell a really good story or you're reading a good story or you're watching a well-crafted TV show or movie, you're being exposed, even if it's on a subliminal level, to what a good story feels like. And if you internalize that, that's what's going to come out of you as you start to work. So I try to look at <laughs> and read as many well-crafted and well-structured things as I can. What influenced your decision to have your lead character be a female in an industry where pretty much the heroes, the writers, and the artists were male at the time? Carelessness. <laughs> No, um, to put all my cards on the table, I enjoy drawing attractive women as much as any artist does. So there's no question that that was part of what, what was going on there. But also, when I created Trekker, I was, it was coming out at a time when people were starting to do comic books that had a lot of sort of grit and texture and, and, and darkness to them. Frank Miller was doing his amazing work on Daredevil and a little bit later Dark Knight. And things like that were happening. And so I wanted a series that sort of started in that kind of a dark sort of violent, grim world that sort of felt dead-endish. And seeing if I couldn't have the character explore that and deal with some of the cost and the ramifications of making those kind of choices and basically having that as their job, <laughs> the toll that that can take on a person and wrestling with those issues and the role of violence in society. And, and So I, I wanted to be about some of those big themes, but on a, on a sort of a background level. I never wanted it to get in, in the way of telling a good action-adventure story. But anyway, I, I also felt that having a, having a young woman in that role was particularly intriguing to me because you're used to seeing men in that role and the, the responses are certain things. And, but it, especially at the time, it felt like that was kind of a fresh way to take on it. And I also feel that with female characters, whether it's 
rightly or wrongly, um, you certainly, it seems like there's, there's a wider emotional range that you could try to explore and depict in comics. I just really like, like that, that incongruity or that, that, that seemingly clash of textures. Anyway, I just felt like it was a really rich emotional ground to explore. So that was a lot. I thought that was really compelling. Okay, well, you talked about this earlier, bringing Trekker back. So it was a long wait for those of us who were big fans. But did you always plan to bring Trekker back, and were you just waiting for the right opportunity? How did we get lucky enough to have Mercy St. Clair back? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, from the very beginning, I, I, I built the series to be a long-form science fiction epic, really, and, and about tracing this young woman's gradual evolution as a human being. And one of the other, when you asked about writing the stories and some of my influences, I realized recently that, you know, reading the book Dune or Asimov's Foundation Trilogy, which are these books that start with a, with a character and start on almost an intimate personal level and over time gradually expand and the world becomes more layered and more complicated and it's very compelling and draws you in. That was something that I always wanted to do with Trekker. And I started the stories as I did because I knew that I was a novice writer at the time. So I thought, well, I'll start with a small bite. This short little eight-page stories in Dark Horse Presents and just a fairly basic story of her, you know, confronting a bad guy situation. It's just a, a very sort of tactile, a lot of physical stuff. And then give myself time to grow as an artist so that, and as a writer so that the scale can expand and, and I can have more command of keeping all that stuff together. So that was part of what was going on there. But it does mean that, yes, from the very beginning, I had a long story to tell of Trekker. So when I had to keep setting the series down for either very short breaks or longer breaks, it was very frustrating to me. And every time I'd go to a show, people would always ask me, you know, when are you going to get back to Trekker? And I always said with absolute sincerity, as soon as I can. It just was unfortunate that it took basically 12 years from the last time I, I put an issue out in 1999 until I realized I could make a website, and that would be a viable way, it seemed to me, to bring the character back. But the plan all along was to tell more stories. In fact, the Train to Avalon Bay, I had written the outline for that story back in 1999. I was hoping to just go right from Trial by Fire, the, that, the story I did then, right into the Train to Avalon Bay. It just took me 12 years to be able to pick up the pencil and start drawing the pages. But actually, in a way, it worked out really well, because that meant that when I did get back to the story, it was very easy to re-enter the world because I'd already had the outline done. So getting back into those characters and that, as I say, that world was, was a very smooth cross. And it was a great, it was like it was like coming in to the oasis after being in the desert in some ways. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really nice way to describe it. I think I shared with you when we met you last year that for Ruth and I, who were fans of Trekker from 1987 on, when we saw the train to Avalon Bay solicited in the spring of 2014, it was like revisiting with a long-time friend that we hadn't seen in 12 years. So I agree completely. Fantastic. It sounds like so webcomics was going to be the approach to bring Trekker back to the world. I wonder what were some of the advantages and the most challenges that you have in doing a webcomic. One of the great advantages is, you know, I could build the website without, you know, without having to invest any money into it. It's an investment of time, of course. And the... The, the main, the big advantage is it allowed me to be committed to return to doing Trekker on my own terms and on my own schedule. Obviously, if I'm working with any sort of a publisher on any project, whether it's Trekker or whatever, they have their, their very real and genuine publishing needs, whether it's schedule and timing and budgeting and all that sort of stuff. 
So one of the things that was the most exciting to me about the website is I didn't have anybody to answer to at all or, or work with or any concessions I had to make. So the only constraints are how quickly can I produce the work. And the, the biggest challenge, of course, is monetizing a website. It's, I post the comics all there for free, and I use it as basically it's a marketing engine. It was, it was a great motivator. I gave myself a deadline of by the time I posted all the old stories, I'll have the next one ready to go. And I put out a page every Monday morning. So that's, you know, every artist desperately needs deadlines or we don't get anything done. Okay. So that's a great advantage. But, but since returning to Trekker now, uh, you know, Dark Horse is not paying me any page rate to do the new stories. So it's definitely a passion project and a work of love, which is why the, the more support the book gets and the more issues it sells and stuff, you know, I mean, it's a business and I do this for a living. So I, I continue to have to take on other work that pays to help support the Trekker work. So that's the biggest challenge is how much how much time and other work it takes when all I really want to do is write and draw Trekker stories. <laughs> that actually leads right into my next question. Were you looking at our questions in advance? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I was just wondering how you find time to work on Trekker every week with all of your other projects. That's a good question. I suppose part of it is that you can't survive in this business for a very long time if you don't learn some degree of self-discipline, develop the skills to be able to schedule and prioritize your time and achieve a certain amount of work within a certain time frame. So that was really important. And also, over the course of the, the years of my business, I, I have learned a little bit of that notion about learning how to work smarter, not harder. So I've been able to become somewhat more efficient at how I produce work. And I have to give credit to my, my studio mates. I'm in a studio in Portland called Periscope Studio, where it has about 25 members. And they're all very, very smart and a wide variety of talented artists working lots of different ways and techniques. And so I can observe some of the, some of the time-saving and efficient methods that, and pragmatic solutions that a lot of the, uh, these other artists come up with and I incorporate as much of that as I can and my I have a very simple agenda in my career is spend as much time doing Trekker as I can and getting as much of it done as I can so anytime I see somebody using a new bit of software or a new tool or a new storytelling technique and I think I could I could apply that to Trekker and make the stories better judging from what I've seen of the social media activity it seems that you and the team at Periscope Studios have a wonderful time working together and I wanted to know more about what it's like to be part of that team Remember what I said about Animal House full of cartoonists? Yes. It's kind of like that. Okay. But actually, that's not really true. It's it's really fascinating to watch the uh, the dynamics of the way the studio is set up. It's it's uh, one open room in a way, but it's sort of like this, this U shape. It's kind of hard to describe it. So they're almost like these different areas of the studios, and some tend to be quiet, and four or five artists will be there with their heads down on the drawing board, just working away on their things. And another area might have, have a conversation going on. And, and it ebbs and flows, and sometimes it's a very boisterous environment. Somebody saw something hilarious on the internet, or somebody just had a meltdown with a client, or somebody's got stumped by, by something not working in one of the software programs that we're working on. And there will be discussions about problem solving that or making jokes about that to release, relieve tension. Or sometimes it's a really serious, um, somebody's got an issue with again with a client or something about their career and they could just use a little bit of an outside perspective uh, and other times it seems like hours will go by and almost not a word is spoken because everybody is so involved in their own work and it all has evolved very organically over time and it's yeah i always feel whenever i go there that i'm that, that i'm among my my peers and it's also very stimulating as i was saying before 
because most of the people there are quite a bit younger than I am, which means they're much more tech savvy than I am. So I'm always peering over their shoulder or asking a question about what are you using now or how did you create that tool in Manga Studio? Or So there's a lot of shop talk that happens, I guess is what I'm saying. And I, I've, it's really helped to keep my career um, somewhat you know, up to the uh, contemporary standards, as they say. <laughs> So we've noticed recently you using the hashtag Trekker soundtrack in some of your posts. So we were wondering, is that just music that you enjoy listening to while you're working on Trekker? Or do you also imagine that in some future potential Trekker movie, if we ever get lucky enough for that? Uh, it's really mostly the former. Uh, when I'm working at my home studio, I, I, I divide my time about 50-50 between when I work at Periscope to enjoy and benefit from that communal creative environment to just working in isolation because sometimes you just work more efficiently and you just need to be in your own space. But when I am working at home, I would just put on an album that for whatever reason seems to fit my, my personal energy level or maybe something about what's going on in, in, in the page I'm working on. If it seems like it's a high energy scene, I, I feel like something might help to summon up the right atmosphere. But as far as a, a literal soundtrack for something that would be a tractor movie, no, I haven't really uh, put much thought into that. I don't think I would for one thing, since it's a science fiction series, I'd want the, the music to sort of feel more of that time frame, something that might feel like it comes from the 23rd century, which well, that would be electronic or industrial sort of things. I'm not really sure, but uh, yeah, but I haven't uh, been quite that ambitious to think quite that far. Into it. So this is just a fun side question before we wrap up here. We love the cape-scarf combination that Mercy wears, but don't quite know what to call it or how to describe it. Does it have a name, and how did you come up with the idea for it? Well, I, unfortunately, I don't have a clever name for it. I, I should probably try to craft one. How I came up with it? You know, that's, that's such a really good question. I, when I was designing the Trekker costume, I've only come to realize recently that about a year before I did Trekker, I was doing one of these short stories for Joe. So actually, it might have been a couple of years. I don't, know, I don't have the time frame really clear in my head. But anyway, one of the short stories that I did that was going to be in the back of this DC War comic, I was intrigued by Samurais, and uh, so I, I wrote and drew this little five or six page story about a Samurai, and I wanted to, because I was working for Joe, and Joe was very much about historical accuracy, so I did a lot of research on Samurai armor and how it was made and what the different iconic image, images they had on their robes were and what the stirrups were like on a Samurai saddle as opposed to like a, a western saddle or something. And I think some of that, the, the way that the pads and armor were used on samurai stuff sort of seeped into my design of Trekker. That doesn't answer your question, though, because they didn't have scarves and capes. So I think I put this, the, the scarf around her neck just as a, a dash of style or color. The, the cape was a very deliberate choice, though, because I, I wanted the character to be dressed in white because I was going to be doing a black and white comic book, and I knew there was going to be a lot of shadows around there, and I thought this would be a way to help help me keep her popping out. But I also knew that there would be times when she'd want to be able to hide in the shadows, so a dark cape seemed like a good way to go. And I think the scarf just was a way to sort of tie that dark purple cape in with some of the other outfit that she has. And then it was years later when I was doing the Avalon Bay story that one of my studio mates, actually, Ben Dewey, pointed out to me, because there there's a scene in Avalon Bay where she's running across the desert on foot. And I realized I could pull that scarf up. Ben pointed out, asked me, are you going to have her pull that up as a hood? 
And I thought, I am now that you mentioned it. <laughs> so I, I realized, that. I like that. yeah, I realized it was much more utilitarian than I'd uh, actually originally envisioned. So thanks to Ben for that one. <laughs> That's fantastic. I really like hearing all of that because I actually can see the samurai influence also in the way her padding is on her, yeah. her uniform as well. Very nice. I'm glad we asked that question. So before we wrap up, we just want to ask what your future plans are for Trekker. A lot more stories. And I, I really am um, excited about the fact that the stories are now getting to the stage with it where she is now really going to be stepping onto that larger stage that I had envisioned from the very beginning of when I first put the proposal together at Dark Horse, where Mercy is going to become more and more involved with these larger, more complicated and subtler forces that are affecting and shaping you know, mankind's process of expanding into the stars and stuff. And at the same time, she's also going to be pretty much against her will, continuing the inner journey, the inner process of discovering more about herself, both her background and who she is as a human being. So in a way, we're, we're really starting to get now to the, to the point of it all. <laughs> What's happened now, I'm not saying that it's meaningless at all. It's been very meaningful and it's laid the groundwork. And Mercy has learned a lot already, although I'm not sure she's aware yet of how much she's learned. But all that stuff is going to start to bear fruit if I do my job right in the next stories as they go on. Fantastic. This has been so much fun. I've really enjoyed our time with you. I want to thank you for your time and just want to ask if there's anything else that you would like to say to your fans before we go. Well, first of all, I, I, again, uh, at the risk of repeating myself, I want to thank you both. It's been a delight to get to know you and a real honor to have your this level of support. And in a way, I guess that segues into the only thing I feel like I'd like to add is just reminding everybody that you know, Trekker is absolutely a work of, you know, a work of passion and love for me. And there's so many aspects to this job that I had not gotten into this business to do. I, I never thought I would have to be involved in marketing and actively promoting something I worked on. But on a creator-owned project, with the way the world is these days especially, it's, it's pretty much all on my shoulders. So just reminding people that the more that they want to and are willing and able to um, spread the word online or, or just if you're in a comic book shop and you can have a casual conversation that makes a tremendous difference it, it, it takes a little bit of the work off of my shoulders and also i just i know i always personally feel it's much more effective to have somebody else recommend something to me rather than the person who's trying to right. sell it to me so thanks to both of you and to people like brian and the people online who talk about Trekker who tweet or retweet um, and share and that sort of stuff and uh, liking the Facebook fan page. It's a numbers game, you know, the more numbers that are out there in all of these ways, the brighter Trekker's future is and the quicker I get to produce the rest of the stories, which again, that's my very simple agenda. <laughs> well, we just want to thank you once again for taking time away from your very busy table. I'm so happy to see how busy you've been this weekend. It's fantastic and thrilling for us. We thank you so sincerely. Have a great rest of the convention. And thanks to you guys, too. And it has been great to see uh, the reception Trekkers have been getting at conventions. And this Baltimore show has been just fantastic. Thank you. Take care. Goodbye. We certainly want to thank Ron Randall for taking time out of his busy weekend at Baltimore Comic-Con for that interview. That was very generous of him. His booth was terrific, with lots of books and prints on display, and he was drawing original sketches for fans throughout the weekend. He had people at his table every time we went past, and we were thrilled to see Trekker getting so much attention. His daughter, Lisa, helped him run the booth over the weekend. They are both very nice and kind, and it was a pleasure to spend a little bit of time with them. The very cute Scuff had recently become Ron's convention booth mascot and was there to greet fans as well. 
fellow Periscope studio mate Jeff Parker, who writes many great comics, including Batman 66, Aquaman, and Flash Gordon, was at the table next to Ron Randall and was equally nice to us during the weekend. We have photos from the weekend on our Facebook and Tumblr pages for those of you who are interested. We had a great time at the convention, which is well-run and well-organized with more than 15,000 attendees. There were more than 200 comic writers and artists in attendance, along with a few media guests, including Katie Cassidy and Paul Blackthorne from Arrow. As listeners to our podcast know, our two favorite comic writers and artists are Ron Randall and Mike Grell, and both were at Baltimore this year, so it was a particularly fantastic weekend for us. I was actually surprised one day at the convention when I was just browsing some on my own, when suddenly a voice said, where's your old man? It was Mike Grell, who had recognized me in the crowd and came over to say hello. He is such a genuinely friendly man. We attended several interesting discussion panels during the weekend. Ron Randall was part of a panel discussion of myth, legend, and literature and comics. Joining him on stage were Walter Simonson, Greg Pak, Jamal Eigel, and Peter Story. Ron and Peter worked together on the Graphic Myths and Legends series and had a chance to talk about how some of the legends and myths from around the world were adapted into the comic format. These look like great books for elementary-aged children and are now in my holiday shopping list for my nephews. Another panel we attended featured Mike Grell along with Mark Buckingham, Charles Vess, Brandon Peterson, and Robert Greenberger. All were there to discuss drawing fantasy worlds. We're fans of many of Mike Grell's works, including Green Arrow, John Sable, and Star Slayer. And at this panel, he had the opportunity to discuss creating his successful and long-running series Warlord and his love of the stories of Edgar Rice Burroughs. Of course, Trekker fans will know that Ron Randall also worked on the Warlord series. Other discussion panels we attended included a celebration of the Spirit's 75th anniversary and a panel called Superheroes Under a Microscope that featured comic legend Ramona Fraden, Mark Wade, and a chemistry teacher, Christopher Priest of Atomic Universe, talking about the science of comics. It was really a great weekend. Thank you all for taking time to listen to the podcast. We hope you'll join us next time when we'll be getting back to the basics and talking about another Trekker story and sharing your feedback. Plus, we picked up a few autographed prints, and we'll have some information on how you can enter to win one. Please feel free to send feedback our way at trekkertalk at gmail.com. You can also find Trekker Talk on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. Be sure to check out Ron Randall's official trekkercomic.com website for a new Trekker page every Monday, as well as links to his Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr pages. And if you would like to support Ron Randall as he creates new Trekker material, please take a look at his Patreon page, where every donation helps him spend more time writing and drawing The Adventures of Mercy St. Clair. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll come back next month for another new episode of Trekker Talk. Sound effects. We make no money from this podcast and no copyright infringement.